Romans 8, 31 through 34. Uh, this should look familiar to you because it is the same exact text that we read last week. The reason why we're doing it again is because we have some unfinished business with these verses. And so I'm going to ask for you to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word in Romans 8, verses 31 through 34. You see it up here on the screen. It's also printed in your bulletin. Best of all, though, is if you have your own Bible that you can follow along with and read along with me as I speak these words. God's word says this. <clears throat> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight during these next few moments as we, we meditate on your word. Lord, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> so last week when I read these verses, I started off with trying to kind of use a, a phrase that captured or summarized all that we see going on in this little chunk of scripture. And what I came up with is what you see up here for the title, the question with no answer. The, the question we start with, the big, broad, overarching question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's verse 31. And the implied answer is no answer at all. There is no reply to that question. There is no uh, possible thing that we could say that is a legitimate challenge to us because God is now for us in the gospel. And so then the passage goes on and it sort of has this subset of questions that we read over again. Who is there to condemn? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The questions keep coming. And again, the reply is the same. No reply really at all because there's nothing we could say that could legitimately be a challenge to God's people. And so I actually have a quote for you guys. This is the book, if you were here last week, you remember right before the sermon, I went to grab the book that I was gonna read from and realized I had forgotten it in paradise. So this week, not only did I remember to bring the book, I also put the quote up on the screen to make sure that I couldn't mess it up like I did last week. Although I think I did an okay job of paraphrasing the quote. But here it is, verbatim, let me read the real thing to you now. From John Stott in his book, Men Made New, he says this, the apostle hurls these questions out into space, as it were, defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them. But there is no answer, for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. That's where I got that phrase, the question with no answer from Stott making this observation that there is no answer to any of these questions. And my goal last week was to kind of look at sort of the, the subset of questions that come after the big one. If God is for us, who can be against us? And sort of dive into them, sort of unpack them and try to think about 
what it is that makes those unanswerable questions so unanswerable. And as I often do, I got a little carried away and I spent way too much time on the first point and way too much time on the second point and the poor third point just had to be shelved till today. So this is why we're in part two of this sermon. I told you guys at the last, uh, the end of last week that there was still some things that we needed to talk about, but we were gonna have to push it towards today. And I mean, it's wild. I thought this week starting, I was like, oh, this is gonna be a really short sermon. It's just one little point to finish off. Well, I've got a full sermon out of this one little point, so I probably should have realized from the get-go that there was more here that we needed to talk about. But most all of it, is gonna be focused on the last question that we didn't get to last week, the last unanswerable question, which is this, it's found in 832. He who did not spare his son, but offered him up to us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The question is in the last half, right? How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And another way of putting that is, what could possibly hinder God from giving his people everything they need? And the implied answer is, well, you know, no answer at all. Silence, nothing. There is nothing or no one that we could possibly offer up as a answer to this question that would legitimately solve it. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things means he most certainly will graciously give us all things. So we're gonna camp out on that verse today, um, partly because, you know, like I said, it was the part we didn't get to last time, but also this verse is special to me. This is one of the first Bible verses I ever memorized as a Christian. And, you know, uh, my scripture memory, the discipline of scripture memory has kind of been, it's had its fit and, fits and starts over the years, like I'm sure is the case with many of y'all. But over time, I've memorized a lot of different verses or tried to memorize a lot of different verses. And there's been times with different portions of the Bible that I've really got it locked in. But as the years go by, your scripture memory verses can begin to get a little fuzzy and fade. And so a lot of the verses that I knew by heart like four years ago, they're, they're a little rough around the edges now, but not this one. I learned this one in 2002, I believe, and I have known it by heart for 20 years and it's never faded. So it's special to me and I want, I'm excited to talk about it today and to talk about um, uh, a word uh, to kind of describe it that'll come up later at the end of the sermon, but it's a word that sort of captures, I think, what we're gonna do today, the logic of this verse. There's a logic that goes into what's being presented to us here. And it starts with a very profound observation that not many of us dwell on often, or maybe even wanna dwell on often, that has to do with the dynamic between God the Father and God the Son in the gospel. So look at verse 32. It's the part that's bolded and underlined it for you right here. According to this verse, who is it that was responsible for leading Jesus to his crucifixion? Who? 
tell me? God the Father. Do you realize what a profound thing it is to say that? God the Father is the one who has moved and orchestrated so that he ultimately is who offers up God the Son on the cross. Now, I imagine, uh, you know, when I asked that, maybe you didn't know if it was meant to be a rhetorical question or not, but there was some hesitation from the congregation. I would probably hesitate too because there's lots of different ways that we can answer that and answer it in a biblical way. So for instance, the next slide I have up here is kind of a listing of all the different people I could think of that we could reasonably say are the ones responsible for leading Jesus to the cross. Number one, Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. We're told repeatedly that he is the one that turned Jesus over to die. But then also right underneath it, that same text, Luke 22, that talks about Jesus betraying, uh, excuse me, Judas betraying Jesus. We've got the fact that in the scripture, it says that Satan is the one that inspired him and moved him to do so. So we could say Satan is the one that led Jesus to the cross. We could say Pilate, Mark 15, 15, makes it very clear that he's the one that signed the death warrant. He was the one that signed off on the execution for Jesus. He's responsible. But then also the crowds in Jerusalem, Pilate is desperately trying to release Jesus to them as a prisoner because he knows that Jesus is faultless. But instead of accepting that, they say, give us Barabbas, this other prisoner who was guilty, guilty, guilty. They want him instead. And for Jesus, they say, crucify him, crucify him. The Jerusalem crowds are responsible. If we go back to the Old Testament and we read the servant songs of Isaiah, We're told in Isaiah 53 that we are responsible for leading Jesus to the cross. We cast him off and esteemed him not, it says. And then finally, you can't get very far in the gospel of John without hearing Jesus say repeatedly that he is the one that has the authority to lay down his life and voluntarily give it. So, Judas, Satan, Pilate, the Jerusalem crowds, us, Jesus. We could even add to that King Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. So many people, the Bible will tell us at certain points that it was they that who through their actions brought Jesus to the cross. And yet here in Romans 8.32, we are told that even though all of these players are essentially involved, the ultimate cause, of Jesus going to his crucifixion is his father, God the Father. I've got another verse for you up here. This one comes in Acts 4. Peter in one of his Jerusalem sermons says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified him, you killed him, but it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. So when we talk in Romans 8.32 about he did not spare his only son, but offered him up for us all. We are talking about he, the Father. He's the one that set this in motion. Now, if you're anything like me, that's stirs up a whole lot of things to ponder in your heart and your mind. 
a whole lot of sort of theological, philosophical thoughts about uh, how is it that God's sovereignty and human responsibility play together? Those are good questions. And they're ones that are going to come up throughout the rest of our studies in Romans. And, well, even a little today, too. But I actually sort of want to focus on another element that comes to the foreground when we think about God the Father's involvement in the cross. And it's an element that we see when we begin to think about what other passages of the Bible this text might be alluding to. You know what an allusion is? A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N? Basically like a callback to another story or another portion of scripture, you know, in literature. And so I think what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit has inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter, but he's inspired him to write this particular sentence in a way that's meant to evoke in our minds another story in the Bible. The story I'm referring to is one about Abraham and how there's a point in his life where Abraham is called to offer up his one and only beloved son to the Lord as a sacrifice. You guys familiar with that? Genesis 22, it's often referred to as the binding of Isaac. Actually have a, this is a painting by Caravaggio. Wow, that's really in sharp relief. Painting came out really well. The projectors here are good. I told Brian that I was a little bit, kind of on the fence about using this painting because the angel looks so weird. He's got a strange look on his face. But hopefully that won't be too distracting to you. Genesis 22, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Well, it goes like this. Isaac was the son promised to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. They were elderly people that were told by an angel that they were going to have a child. And that was so preposterous to Sarah, she laughed. In fact, that's what Isaac's name means, laughter. And not only that, they they got the promise in old age, but it was decades later until that promise came to fulfillment. In fact, it leads to one of what I think is the funniest verses in the whole Bible. It's in Hebrews 11 when it says, and Abraham received his son when he, he was as good as dead. That's so mean. (laughs) Abraham's in heaven, like, really? You got to describe me that way. So Isaac is the son, the miracle baby that comes when he has no business coming to folks that were like 100 years old. And not only that, he's the child of promise. Through him, all the blessings that had been given to Abraham were going to be communicated to the whole earth. I mean, we, in a sense are children of Abraham through the blessing given to Isaac. He's the conduit of that. And yet, there's this moment where God speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to give me all, even your beloved son. I want you to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and there you will offer him, that is give him to me as a sacrifice. And God had always been good to Abraham. He had blessed him. He had led his family uh, from the the place that they knew into this unknown land. And he had made him prosper. 
Like Abraham knows that he serves a trustworthy God. So he's like, I don't get this. I don't understand. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I'm going to be obedient to the Lord here. So he begins to make arrangements and set out to the mountain. It's a multi-day trip. And parents, can you imagine? As my southern accent comes out. Can you imagine how brutally hard that would be for a father to go on that trip with his son? The pain, the heartache, all the questions and the confusion. Holy cow. And they get to the mountain. And at this point, I think Isaac probably figures out what's going on. And even so, Abraham carries through trusting God, saying, he's going to show up in some way. And he carries on even up to the very last moment. The knife is in his hand, poised to strike. And at that last moment, the angel of the Lord intervenes and stays his hand. At that last moment, a ram appears out of nowhere as a substitute sacrifice. And Abraham is called off not to sacrifice his son Isaac, but to use that substitute, the ram, instead. Now, oftentimes when we speak about that story, we focus on the substitute there, how that's a foreshadowing, a picture of who Christ would be as our substitute. Instead of us being sacrificed, he's the ram that shows up out of nowhere to take our place. And that is 100% beautiful and right. But it's not the reason that I think Paul brings up this story here. The reason is because he wants you to think about God the Father with all the feeling and emotion and gravity in which we read the story about Abraham sacrificing or almost sacrificing his son. Like we read Genesis 22 and you guys as parents are like, oh my word, what does this mean? Like this just ruined my day reading this because my heart is so heavy now and I'm so broken and hurt and heavy hearted over it. And Paul's saying, like, yeah, now apply those feelings to God the Father, offering up his only beloved son. Do you get, in the words of the song we sing tonight, how deep the Father's love is? If he was willing to do that. Just like Abraham, God the Father leads his only beloved son three days in this, this, well, more than three days, the week of Jerusalem, getting closer and closer to the hill that we call Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. But the big difference is when Jesus, the son, is brought to that place, there is no ram that suddenly appears. There is no angel that shows up out of nowhere to stop the proceedings. There's only the cross. And the father following through on offering up his only son so that we might live. We sang that song earlier tonight, how deep the father's love for us. And I shared with the Paradise Congregation this morning, I love that song because I think it helps me in realizing that that, that love and passion and sacrifice isn't just a quality of the son in the gospel. We talk about the love of Jesus and offering himself and willing to die on the cross and rightly so, 
That is very much there. But what I often forget is that God the Father was having to witness and see this and carry through with it. His son, his only begotten son. And I think sometimes of God the Father, like his role in the gospel is sort of like the stoic, emotionless judge. Like he's the one that's saying, justice must be satisfied. He's the one saying, sin must be paid for. This must be done and pouring out his wrath. And he's just like sort of unmoved in all of this. Couldn't be farther from the case. All that emotion that we feel when we read about Abraham being called to offer his son, that is what we can think about with God the Father, except we need to multiply it by like a trillion. And I can't imagine, and I have to be careful here because I don't want to anthropomorphize God. That means like, you know, pretend like he's a man that feels just like I do. He's not, he's God. He's way beyond me, a creature. And yet I just think about his son, his only son on the cross crying out and that he would restrain himself from rescuing him in that moment of agony. Or the son saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and that the father with all the depth of his being wants to, to rush in and say, I haven't forsaken you, I'm here. But instead for our sake, for the sake of the gospel, carries through with offering up his beloved son, a son which he had a relationship with that none of us could even fathom, a depth of love that was forged over eternities. And he offered up his only son. Now you might be thinking that the purpose of me sort of spending time really get you thinking about that is, you know, it's for sentimental purposes. Like I'm tugging at your heartstrings. I'm trying to get you to to have all the feelings and, and motivate you that way. That's actually not my intention. There is a lot of sentiment in this passage. There is a lot of emotion when you think about it in the way I think it wants us to think about it. But the purpose for all that emotion and sentiment is actually to teach us a logic, a logical truth that is not sentimental. It's not very emotional. It is just as plain as two plus three equals five. And here's the logic. If God the Father was willing to do that, if he was willing to offer up his only son in all the emotional ways that we just talked about, how much more will he give you the things that you need that are so much lesser than what he did for you on the cross? There's a unshakable logic to that argument. And just so you know, I don't wanna get too far away from the text. We can pull it up one more time. Here we go. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the logic part. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God the Father has already given the most precious, the most valuable, the most treasured thing of all, what could you possibly ask of him or need from him that he would say, that's beyond me? 
or that's too difficult, or that requires too much effort. Nothing. And so we come back to that, the question with no answer. You, answer. you ask that question and the replied response, excuse me, the implied response is silence. There's no way to answer that. Because if he was willing to give his own son, there's nothing that will hinder him from giving you what you need. Think about, a, <laughs> this is a silly example, but. I think it worked okay this morning when I preached it. Pretend you have a friend that is a mountain climber. It's Caleb Fleming, actually. He's the mountain climber, that's your friend. I could see mountain, or excuse me, Caleb doing this. Are you having to leave right now? Sorry, I put you on the spot. So pretend Brian's the mountain climber. Brian, you better not leave right now. And he's climbed Mount Everest. Let's say he's climbed Mount Everest multiple times. And I mean all the way to the tippy top where the air is thin and you like are losing your mind up there. You know, he's just covered in ice and like Brian's done Everest. Let's say you've done it six times, Brian, which would just be insane. So here we are, we're together. Me and Brian are hanging out catching up, I'm hearing about his most recent expedition to Everest, and I'm like, hey, you know what would be fun? It's a nice day outside. Let's head over to Upper Park and just, just walk up Monkey Face. Get a good view of the park. And Brian was like, ah, you know, there are a lot of loose rocks. We might turn an ankle. You know, Monkey Face, it's a few hundred feet up. Uh, the air up there might be a little too thin. I've, I've got asthma and I need to be able to breathe. But he's the same guy that's climbed Mount Everest six times. Would monkey face ever be a challenge for him or make him say that's too dangerous or that's beyond me? Of course not. It's the same logic that's going on here. If God was willing to give his son with all that we talked about that went into that, what is it that we could ask of him or need from him that he's not willing to give us, that he's too scared of? Is it provision? That he would take care of your material needs, feed you, give you drink, give you clothing? Is that what we're afraid he won't give? Is it comfort when we're suffering, when we're hurting, that we feel like he's gonna leave us alone? Are we afraid that he won't bolster our strength and give us perseverance to work through our doubts and our struggles and our skepticism? Or maybe what we're most scared of is that he won't give us the strength to fight through the things that we're afraid of. All of those things are like Brian climbing Mount Everest and then saying, ah, monkey face is too much for me. Or maybe it's our future that we struggle with thinking about. We wonder, I keep struggling with sin so much. I feel like I'm taking like one step forward and four steps back. Is it true that God is going to complete this work that he's doing in me, that he's gonna sanctify me and make me Christ-like? Is it true that he's gonna work all things together for the good of those who love him? Maybe those are the things we're wondering if he'll actually give. And again, 
the logic hits us. He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for you. You really are going to question that he's going to work all things together for your good? Of course he will. He's already given the most precious thing of all. And this is what I meant earlier when I said that the sentiment, the emotion of this verse is meant to lead us to an unshakable logic. That if he was willing to do this, how much more will he care for us in the lesser things? That phrase, unshakable logic, is actually not something I came up with. It is... um, Something I came across in my study this week as I looked at some old sermons from one of my favorite pastors, Pastor John Piper. He's preached on this verse like six or seven times over the course of his career. And I had heard some of them way back in the past, so I wanted to kind of revisit those things. And what I ended up coming across is actually right before his retirement, which was a few years ago, he preached on this verse once more. This one was new to me. And as I'm listening, what I hear him say is that he is about to retire from pastoral ministry after 33 years of doing it. And he confesses to the congregation that he was terrified. He was scared of the unknown, of stepping out of what he knew and what his life had been for three decades and entering into something new. But he tells them, this verse and the logic behind it has been my anchor whenever I'm afraid to say, John, he was willing to offer his own son. How can you possibly believe he's not gonna give you what you need for this new season? And so that got me thinking about my own life and wondering if this this verse has been operative for me in the same way. And first instinct, I actually said no. I was like, no, I don't really think I have thought about this verse in that way over the years. But then, but then I stopped myself and reconsidered because I don't know if you remember this, but earlier in the sermon, I told you guys, this is one of the first verses that I ever memorized. And it's probably the only verse that I've memorized over my 20 years as a Christian that I feel like has never uh, gotten fuzzy or faded in my memory. It has stuck with me in this like verbatim, like photographic memory kind of way. And I've begun to think that maybe because of that, this verse has played a part at big moments in my life in ways that I wasn't really aware of until I thought about it this week. Precisely 13 years ago, or approximately, Two weeks from now, so the last weekend of August will be my 13th anniversary at the church. I arrived in Paradise, California, last weekend of August, 2009. Me and my dad with this tiny little U-Haul that we drug across the country, pull up Clark Road, um, listening to Phil Collins, Another Day in Paradise. That was the highlight of that week. We planned on that the whole trip. (laughs) So we see the Welcome to Paradise sign and say, cue it, Dad. Which, I mean, it's, it's kind of a ballad, so it's not really like a pump-up song, but, you know, it fit. So we pull into paradise, and, uh, 
you know, I come, I, I had been so excited about this calling. I came out to be an intern for six months at the Church in Paradise. Here I am 13 years later, so can't get rid of me. And that first weekend at church was so great, meeting the folks. Vespers didn't exist then. It was just Ridge Paradise up on the hill. And I met so many people. I was invited to even go to uh, Catherine Bulger, Craig and Tony Bulger's daughter. She had a reception. She had just gotten married. And they didn't know me from Adam, but they invited me to come. It was awesome. But it was very, very obvious that first Sunday that I had just moved 3,000 miles across the country to a brand new town. I didn't know a soul. I was light years away from my family, and I was very alone. And I remember, for some reason, sitting in my closet in my little apartment off Elliott Road up in Paradise and thinking, what have I done? And not because Paradise wasn't as expected or I didn't like the church. I absolutely loved it. It was as good as it could possibly be. But I think it just hit me that all those things that you're like, oh, yeah, I'll be far from family. I'll be far away. It'll be a different sort of culture. But then you're in it and you're like, this is scary. And I remember being on the phone with my parents and telling them I had every intention of doing a week and then telling them I'm going to finish out my six months, but I have no intention to stay here. I'm moving back to Georgia. And it's in that moment, my weakest, feeling so afraid of this new calling in place that words like this jumped out to me. Josh. Your heavenly father didn't spare his only begotten son. How, what could possibly hinder him from giving you the strength you need to make it through this, if this is truly your calling? Seven years later, I remember vividly where I was when I got a call from my mom saying something was really wrong with my dad. He had just failed a a test to re-up his insurance, and it was a cognitive test to just remember words. We didn't know for sure what that meant, but it was scary. A year after that, we got the official diagnosis that he had Alzheimer's, and it was moving quick. And I remember staring out the window and just thinking about, what does this mean for my relationship with my dad, with my mom's like how she's going to care for him, like even if I could stay in California, if I need to move back home. And I hear these words, Josh, your heavenly father didn't spare his own son. How will he not also give you what's needed now in this moment? A year after that, the year that some of you guys experienced at our old church building when Chris Reed, our ruling elder, stepped in front of y'all and told y'all that I had to take a leave of absence because I was struggling so deeply with depression that I could hardly move. And even Brian and I were talking about that this week when he got back from his sabbatical and we were just recalling that season and Brian told me, he was like, man, I didn't know if you were coming back. And I had to tell Brian, I didn't know either. We told you guys it was a three-month leave of absence, but the reality was it was indefinite because when it happened, I thought there was no way I would ever be healthy enough to stand in the pulpit and preach God's word again. But all through those months, this promise, Josh, 
and spare my own son, how will I not also give along with him the strength you need to make it through this? It's happened over and over again. It's happened when I have failed you guys, when I've sinned against you and wounded you because of my immaturity and sin. And I say, Lord, am I really growing as a Christian? Do I have any business being a pastor? Josh, he who did not spare his own son. It's happened when I've wrestled with doubt and skepticism, wondering if, do I have the confidence to preach the gospel anymore, Lord? Josh, how will I not also give you all things? Over and over, the unshakable logic of this verse has been the thing that's rescued me when I'm about to be crippled by fear. The last line of that sermon from John Piper I'm sharing with you is this. He says, after 40 years of being a pastor, I bear witness that the unshakable logic of heaven has never failed and it never will. This logic that he who did not spare his own, uh, his own son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That logic will always hold. And so after 20 years of being a Christian and after 13 years of being a minister in this church, I'm gonna join my testimony to him and say, this logic holds and it always will. Let's pray. Father, I pray that that we would be able to see accurately your heart on that Good Friday when you had to witness your one and only son being subjected to execution like a common criminal. Lord, let us understand that and know that and feel that and then let us lead us, let it lead us to this glorious conclusion that if you were willing to do that, how much more will you care for us with all that we need? Lord, teach us that in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.